Good morning. Well, it's official, I think, for the third time. I am your pastor. <laughs> That's exciting. Yesterday at the installation service, um, something unique happened. Well, this morning we sang 10,000 Reasons, and worship team, you did a great job, but I was a little partial to yesterday's version where my four daughters got to come up here and sing it. All right, so we have been for about two months in the book of Mark, and we've been learning a number of things about this man named Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the prophesied Savior foretold of long ago by the Jewish prophets, and he has such amazing authority that the people were astounded by him. It's as if he speaks the very words of God. So he's presenting something that these people have never seen before, an authority in the spiritual realm that is so powerful to such a degree that he's casting out demons, that he's forgiving sins. He has such astounding authority in the physical realm that he's healing every ailment and and physical defects. He can make even an ostracized, unclean leper clean. And as a result, people are coming to him in great crowds, so much so that Jesus can no longer move freely in cities and towns. He's forced out into desolate, open places, away from town, outside of the camp. And there are three types of people that are coming to see Jesus, generally speaking. There are the disciples who come in faith, as small as it may be, to have a relationship with Jesus. There are those in the crowds, the passive onlookers, who come to see this spectacle of Jesus and get something from him. And then there are the skeptical religious leaders who come with closed minds and hearts, just looking to reinforce their skepticism. But regardless of these stances that the people come to see Jesus with, or come from a position of, Jesus continues to offer himself to them, to be their hope, that they might see in him their hope of salvation. And with few exceptions, again and again and again, as Jesus presents himself with the, in this way, in this gracious way, he is met with resistance. They are offended by this extravagant love that Jesus is pouring out. So we're going to see this grace on display today, this extravagant, reckless, abundant love that Jesus is pouring out in such a beautiful display. And we'll see it met with that resistance. So turn with me to our, our chapter, our, our passage in, in Mark 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 today. I'll go ahead and read it. Mark 2 Verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you've come for the broken. Because how broken we are. I'm so thankful that you do not demand of us righteousness. That we might be good and then you'll come and be our Savior. But you come to us in our brokenness, in, our, in the ruin that is our lives. To save us, to heal us. To bind up our broken hearts. God, may this be impressed on us in a, a fresh way this morning where we know this about you. That despite our brokenness, you beckon and say, follow me. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So it seems that Jesus was using Simon and Andrew's house as a home base when he started his ministry. But because, as I was saying, he's performing such powerful miracles and he's speaking with such authority, the crowds, they, they want to see him, they become so great that they're pushing him out into the wild places. It happened after Jesus cleansed the leper. It appears to be happening again now that Jesus has healed the paralytic. The crowds are forming again, and, it, and Jesus is heading back out of town. So again, as Jesus is heading out of town, the crowds are following him. Again, Jesus is primarily engaged in teaching. And again, there is not one word about what Jesus is teaching. We have no idea the content of his teachings. And Mark is not trying to show us the content of Jesus' teaching. He's trying to show us Jesus, the person of Jesus, how he lived, how he embodied the gospel. The gospel is not something that's merely spoken. The gospel is something that is lived out. And Jesus is the incarnate gospel. He is the living gospel. So Mark wants us to see Christ, the gospel of God. And already in this second chapter of Mark, can see this pattern emerging with Christ. He has a certain way of delivering this gospel, of being the gospel to the world. It might seem erratic. At times, he's just kind of aimlessly wandering around Palestine, Palestine as this philosopher teacher. That is not at all what is happening. Jesus has intention in everything. Fellowship with him is not by accident and it is not by coincidence. There is a purpose in his traveling, in his itinerant teaching and preaching. That plan is going to become abundantly clear as we go through this passage today. So, Capernaum is this town that he's been in. I haven't talked much about Capernaum, uh, but it is this border town in Galilee that a major Roman road is running through. You see the map up on the screen. So just past the city of Capernaum, which is the red dot on, on the screen, is the uh, Roman territory of Golanitis. 
So Capernaum and Galilee stops, and then you have Golanitis. And uh, as it, being, being a border town, many travelers would be taking this Roman road, going through uh, from Golanitis through Capernaum, and then into Galilee, perhaps even down into Judea, which you see the number six in the bottom left of the screen. Uh, Judea would have been below that. So they're traveling from Decapolis, Golanitis, over the Sea of Galilee, through Capernaum, into Galilee, and down into Judea. So uh, these, are, these Roman territories, obviously they're occupied by the Romans. The Romans tax the people, and there's a poll tax, which means every person in the Roman Empire is taxed. If you're a landowner, you're taxed more. And the Romans took care of collecting those kinds of taxes, But there were taxes for so many other things, like the transport of goods. So these people traveling were often merchants, and they would be taking their goods from Golanitis or the Decapolis into Galilee. And as they crossed the border in Capernaum, they would be taxed. So tax collectors are sitting there waiting to meet them. And Levi would have been one of these tax collectors because the Romans contracted out the collection of these taxes to local tax collectors. So this is who Levi was. He had his booth set up along the road, and as people came by with their goods, he would require that they pay him a tax, and his goons would be there to enforce that they pay the tax. And so Rome required a certain amount per tax. And it was Levi's duty to give Rome that amount, and then take his wages out of it. But Levi and the other tax collectors would go above and beyond this. They would take an extra cut. And the people didn't know exactly perhaps what was being required of Rome. So Levi would say an amount. And they'd have to pay that amount under penalty of getting beaten up by the goons or being passed off to the Romans. So they'd have to pay it. But Levi was taking a huge sum. He'd give to Rome what they required. He'd take his wages, and then he'd take a whole lot more for himself. And he was basically robbing the people that were coming through. And Rome knew this. Rome knew that this was happening, but they decided to turn a blind eye to it. So it was highway robbery condoned by the government. There might be things like that in our world. (laughs) So as a result, those tax collectors were often quite rich, and their wealth bought them power. There's there's actually some uh, famous stories uh, after Jesus' day of these tax collectors exerting powerful influence in Judea when these revolts of, of the Galileans began to erupt and of the Judeans began to erupt against the Romans. They would use their money to wield influence in local governments. So they're extremely powerful people. But despite their wealth and despite their power, the tax collectors were absolutely hated by the Jews. The money that they made, that made them so wealthy, was unjustly taken out of the pockets of the Jews. And then not only did these tax collectors unjustly take money, unashamedly from the Jews, but they worked for the enemy the despised Romans. The Romans who are categorized among the non-Jewish Gentiles. They were the occupying force of Judea. 
of Galilee, and they imposed their taxes and their laws on the people. But beyond that, and more offensively, is they had this certain humanistic influence over the Palestinian land. They were very violent people. They were sexually immoral, living for the pleasures of the flesh. And it was an influence to the Jews that was absolutely vile. It was unclean. The religiously devout in Judea, they hated this. This was being imposed on them. And it is to these unclean, vile Romans that the tax collectors, the Jewish tax collectors, cozied up with. And you think of it like a mole betraying information to an enemy country. Or like a Jew selling his people to the Nazis. They were hated. They were in bed with the Romans. They were more despised. And these tax collectors were more despised than the Romans. They betrayed their own people. And as a result, they were regarded as unclean. The tax collectors were regarded as unclean. Perhaps even more so than the leper that we looked at in chapter 1. Because the leper did not choose his station in life. But the tax collector did. Because these tax collectors were so universally hated by the Jews, there are special texts, non-biblical writings, that deal specifically with tax collectors. Tax collectors were forbidden to enter a synagogue, and certainly the temple in Jerusalem. Their families were ashamed of them. They were disgraced to their families. If a tax, this is crazy, if a tax collector touched your house, Your house was rendered unclean, much like if a leper were to touch your house. And then, maybe most shockingly, Jews were granted impunity by the religious leaders to lie to tax collectors as freely as they wanted. They were lumped in with thieves and murderers. That's how they regarded the tax collectors. Now, just a note to remember, these are non-biblical Jewish writings, traditions that the elders, the Pharisees made, and traditions that became so important, they practically became like laws for the Jews. They're not a part of God's law. There is never a place in the law that forbids a Jew to associate with a non-Jew, is purely a tradition that emerged long after the law of God was established. But nonetheless, a devout Jew would never associate with a tax collector. So when Jesus looks at Levi in verse 14, sitting at his tax booth, ready to unjustly take money, and he says, follow me, it is an utter scandal. But amazingly, Levi gets up and follows. You see, Levi, much like the leper in chapter 1, much like we discussed two weeks ago, he has practically had his identity taken away from him. His family surely ostracized him. His countrymen despised him. He was stripped of his ability to worship God. But at least he got paid. And he got paid handsomely. 
But when he gets up to follow Jesus, he leaves that last one good thing about himself behind. He leaves his income behind. Not only is he now despised, but he's got no income. If he was the scum of the earth before, now he's the broke scum of the earth. Following Jesus costs Levi something. He had to give up the last one good thing about himself, his wealth. So what does he have now? Nothing. The Jews don't want him. The Romans don't want him. He's a nobody. But he has chosen Christ. Christ has beckoned. Christ is above everything else. He has fellowship with Christ now. He has everything. And surely this is faith. Surely getting up and following is faith. Look at Mark 10.52. It should be up on the screen. This verse comes right after Jesus heals a blind man. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What's happening in this verse, in chapter 10, is that faith and following are being equated. Faith and following flow out of one another. Faith in Jesus means that you're following Jesus. Following Jesus means that you have faith in Jesus. And does this not follow our definition of faith that I presented last week? Faith is active trust that Jesus satisfies our deepest and most heartfelt needs. Again, faith is active trust that Jesus satisfies our deepest and most heartfelt needs. This is what Levi recognizes in Christ. And he gets up, leaving everything behind to follow. Have you followed like this? You know, the story of Levi, this ancient tax collector, I think it's relevant to all of us because we all have problems. We might believe that society looks at us as strange people, as weirdos, as not belonging, as unworthy. Society has these values. We have these values. Maybe we feel ostracized. We live among a people, but we feel different. We're surrounded by strangers, surrounded by people, but we feel alone. And Jesus says, follow me. Even this morning, through this text, through my words, Jesus says to you, follow me. So will you trust him? Will you trust him even though you might have to give up that last one good thing about yourself? He wants you, he wants to bring you healing. He wants to bring you fellowship with himself. He's reaching his hand out and he's ready to meet your deepest and most heartfelt needs. Will you trust him for that? Will you, will you receive this grace? And you can imagine Levi's deepest and most heartfelt needs. Levi wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be loved. He wanted to belong. Again, he didn't belong to the Jews. He didn't belong to the Romans. 
And Jesus says, follow me. There's something different about this man, Jesus. And certainly Levi had heard of Jesus before this because everybody in the region was hearing about Jesus and these mighty works that he's performing. So he heard about this great power and authority that Jesus had. And yet, Jesus presents himself with grace, with humility, in meekness, with kindness. And he's somebody that clearly has no regard for these social normatives to approach a tax collector. He's unafraid to associate with the scum of the earth. He was powerful and loving all at the same time. The gospel in a man. So Levi gets up and he leaves it all behind so that he can have his deepest and most heartfelt needs met. He acts in faith. And then all of a sudden, Almost out of nowhere, Jesus is eating with Levi and a bunch of other tax collectors. I love how Mark writes, one point to the next, and and no explanation as to why that's happening. There's an urgency that's going through this book, the presentation of Christ as the gospel, eating with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 15, he reclined at table in in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So for Levi, his first act of faith is to get up and follow Christ. His next act of faith is to tell all his friends about Christ. And they get together and eat with Jesus. Last week we saw that Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic. He forgave one man's sins. But this week, we see Jesus' grace being offered a little bit more broadly. He makes available that same forgiveness to all sinners. Now, let me be a little more precise. I'm not saying that all sinners are forgiven. But I am saying that forgiveness is available to all sinners. And that's what he's displaying here. Look how verse 15 is phrased. Tax collectors, sinners, and disciples were reclining at table with Jesus. The implication is that Jesus is the host of the dinner, not Levi, even if it is Levi's house. Jesus is the host. Because what Jesus is doing is he's offering fellowship with himself to these tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders must have thought about Jesus, that he is condoning these sinful acts of the tax collectors. That he, just like the Romans, is turning a blind eye to their injustices. But that is not what is happening. Jesus is not condoning sinful activity. He's offering forgiveness of sins to those who practice those sinful activities. He's offering relationship with himself just by entering their house, the house of the tax collector, and reclining at table, and offering fellowship, Jesus is making available forgiveness of sins. But look at how the Pharisees respond. In verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat 
with tax collectors and sinners. This story is where Mark chooses to introduce the Pharisees, so I have to give you a little bit of context about Pharisees so you you know who they are. The Pharisees was an order that was established shortly after the Jews came back from exile in Babylon. They wanted to follow God as closely as possible, to devote themselves to knowing the scriptures and and to follow the law. They wanted to set themselves apart from everything that was unlawful. And so the name Pharisee can be translated as the set-apart ones. The Pharisees, they were were largely responsible for keeping the Jewish people together, for worshiping God, for maintaining their Jewish identity through some very difficult times. Here's that 430-year period of silence from God. And the Pharisees, orders like the Pharisees, helped to carry the Jewish people through that silence. So they did a lot of good for the Jews. But then they began to establish these extra laws, these traditions that went far above and beyond the law of God. And how well the Pharisees followed these laws and traditions. How righteous they were. They became so infatuated with how well they were following the law and their traditions that they basked in their own righteousness, the righteousness that they had created for themselves. If anyone was good enough for God, it was the Pharisees, or at least that is what they thought. But that righteousness corrupted their position. Their position became a means to manipulate people, to get honor for themselves out of people to be respected by people for how religious they were. They demanded that everybody else follow their traditions. And if people couldn't meet those demands, they were looked down upon, they were burdened with guilt. And they were told that God's favor was not on them. That kind of pride and self-righteousness erected barriers between God and people. And the Pharisees were standing on the opposite end of that barrier saying to everybody, climb it! You have to climb it! But nobody could. You see, the laws and traditions became more important than the lawgiver. Personal honor and self-righteousness became more important than seeking God and His righteousness. And what Paul says in Romans 9, verses 30 through 32a, is painfully depicted in the Pharisees. And I've got I to imagine that when Paul writes these words, his heart is breaking for his own people. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. The Pharisees thought that good works, merit, earned you righteousness before God but how completely they missed the point of the law. The law was meant to show everybody how unrighteous they were. 
It was meant to show how good and holy and perfect God is. And show you that you're unable to produce the righteousness of God. You can't make it happen in yourself. And in fact, self-righteousness is perhaps the most poisonous of all sins. Knowing that God is perfectly holy and righteous, that you are an unrighteous sinner, worthy of separation and punishment before God, is the intention of the law. Therefore, the law is a death sentence to us. It's not a list of things to accomplish in order to gain God's favor. Your only hope is to have faith that the lawgiver will make a way for you apart from the law, that his punishment will be turned aside. But the Pharisees couldn't see it. They put faith in themselves. They tried to self-righteously work their way into righteousness. And they tried to make everybody else do the same. How many Pharisees are in church today? They do all these good things in the church and they want everybody to know how good they've been in church. All the good things that they have been doing. They hunger and thirst for the praises of man. They want others to act exactly like they think they should act. And if people look different or if they are living in sin or if they do things that are frowned upon, the modern day Pharisee gets uncomfortable, gets offended. And they might mention to somebody else, did you hear that they got a DUI? Did you hear that they were once in prison? Did you hear that he's a homosexual? Now, we don't condone sin, including the sin of self-righteousness. But if we ever withhold love and generosity and kindness and grace for people because of how they look, because of their actions because we disapprove of what they're doing, then who on earth are we following? Certainly not Jesus. Because Jesus lavishes lavishes his love despite people's behavior and appearance. If you see someone holding up a sign by the side of the road, maybe it says that they're a vet trying to support a family, and they need some money. And if you pass that sign and you feel like, as I feel sometimes, that sign's probably not true. I see them out here a lot. And you judge them for that, for deceiving people, for their own gain. Just like Levi did. Just like Levi did. Or should you lavish your love on them in an uncalculated way? Do you look down on people who come to church and they curse in the hallway or they look a little bit rough? Do you shake your your head at the fact that they know nothing about the Bible or that they listen to distasteful music? What if they're in the country illegally? What if their kids seem out of control and disrespectful? What if they're too skinny? What if they're too heavy? 
What if they're undisciplined? What if they're a prostitute? What if some men came into this church on a Sunday that clearly looked like they were in a gang and they lined the back two rows? What if the sinners at Jesus' table looked like this? Do you judge these people and, and their behaviors? Do you judge them because you think that's not how Christians should be? But enter Jesus, who turns all of this on its head. He upends the law with grace. He goes and he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And he knows how unrighteous they are. He goes precisely because they are unrighteous. Precisely because they never can ascend to the heights of righteousness on their own. And the Pharisees question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's not an inquisitive question because of curiosity. It's a question that drips with snide condescension and self-righteousness. How offensive, Jesus. These people are tax collectors and sinners. You couldn't have gathered a more disreputable group disreputable group of people. These are the despised. Why would you soil yourself with such uncleanliness, such offensive company? It's disgusting. And certainly Jesus should have been rendered unclean because of this association with tax collectors and sinners. That's the tone that that their question carries. They are offended to the utmost degree. Although, I think the Pharisees would not have been offended had Jesus done this one thing. If Jesus would have said to the tax collectors and sinners, give up your tax collecting ways and repent of your sins and then I will come fellowship with you. Cleanse yourself. Go through the ceremonial cleansing and show these Pharisees that you're clean. And then I will come eat with you. I think the, tax collect- or the Pharisees would have applauded that. Yeah, Jesus. But Jesus demands none of these conditions. And that is precisely the scandal. Fellowship with Jesus is unconditional. Moral repentance is not a prerequisite to love and acceptance by God, by Christ. Jesus enters into fellowship with people as they are, in their sin. He does not demand that change happens for him to fellowship with them. Change happens because of the love of Christ. Because it's lavished freely on a person. Because it's uncalculated, extravagant, reckless, and it's poured out on a person. And if if it happens, it's elicited because of that love. Not demanded by a law. Romans 2.4 says that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. 
In fact, in our passage today, we have no idea if these tax collectors and sinners repented. None at all. Aside from Levi, parentheses, Levi would later be given a new name, Matthew, and he would write one of our Gospels. So whether or not change came to these tax collectors and sinners, the behavior change is not a point of this story. The point is that Jesus loves them extravagantly, recklessly, unconditionally. The merit of the sinners is no concern. The fact that they are sinners and in need of God's love is Christ's concern. That is the definition of grace. Despite how unworthy you are, however broken you may be, However desperately you fall short of the law, the sins that have piled up in your soul, Jesus still offers his love. Grace means that even though you do not deserve his love, you have not earned his love, he gives it anyway, regardless of your merit. Grace is not about how much you have sinned, and grace is not about how much good you have done. Grace is about how good our Savior is. And he chooses you anyway. And it is only found in Jesus. And so therefore, offense number two, Jesus places himself above the law. He offers grace instead of law. And the Pharisees hate it. Jesus did not offer sinners the law as their hope. He does not strangle them with the 613 demands that come from the law. No, Jesus only highlights the fact that they and you are separated from God. Deserving of punishment. I'm sorry, that's what the law shows you. Instead, Jesus offers hope for the sinner. He offers fellowship in their brokenness. He sees He sees your need to be reunited with the Father. And He lavishes love. As unworthy as you are, He lavishes love. And to those, to those that know that they are sick and unworthy and unrighteous, they are the ones that Christ came from, came for. Verse 17. When Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is how Jesus chooses his followers. It's the sick and the unrighteous and the broken that Jesus came for. You can know that Jesus came to fellowship with you if if you ask yourself this question. Am I sick? Am I broken? Am I unrighteous? And if you say yes, then you are close to the kingdom of God. You are the poor in spirit. And Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you know you are broken and not good enough, if you know that your soul needs healing, then Jesus came for you. He did not come to those who are healthy. He is the physician of those who have a broken heart needing bound up to those that need their sins forgiven. So if you think you're doing okay, think that there isn't much about you that needs to be changed, that you're good where you are, and beware, you are in league with the Pharisees. If you think other people around you need to change their behavior because they're not Christian enough, they're not Christ-like enough, because it's not appropriate in church, then beware. You're in league with the Pharisees. Look at your own eye. See the log there. Don't even think about the speck in your neighbor's eye. And this log is being compared, or the log is self-righteousness in your own eye. The speck could be prostitution. The speck could be homosexuality. The speck could be that you're a tax collector. The log is self-righteousness. And how self-righteousness grips at my own heart. I see the Pharisee in myself all too frequently. It's easy to judge people by their behavior and what you see on the outside. And I battle against it all the time, all the time. But thanks be to God that he can save us from every possible sin, even the sin of self-righteousness. Your goodness is not enough to save you. My righteousness is not good enough to save me. But Christ's is. And so we trust him. We know that his righteousness is good. And we know that our righteousness, know that your righteousness is a noose around your neck. And you're killing yourself. But Christ in his righteousness is standing there next to you, ready to cut the noose. You don't have to perform for anybody anymore. Trust in Jesus. He has accomplished the righteousness for you. He has performed all righteousness for you. And rest in that free gift of grace. Because he bought it in his blood. He who lived without sin, met every requirement with the law, was perfectly worthy of the Father's love. He took on his back our sins and our self-righteousness. He put the noose around his own neck so that you could be free. He took your death so that you could live. And do you believe that? 
If you believe it. If you believe it. Look up from your booth of sin and see Jesus standing there. Hear Him say to you, follow me and get up. Leave everything behind for our Christ who has loved you as broken and unworthy as you are, has loved you and offers fellowship with Himself. He is worthy. He came for you. And if you get up and you leave it all behind, the Father says to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. The love of the Father is yours forever, for eternity, infinitely increasing from one moment to the next. And so Jesus says, follow me. Will you? Let's pray. May we hear you say it. May we hear you say it. Follow me. How desperate we are, Father, to be loved. How desperate we are to belong, to have our identity in something that matters. How desperate we are to not have to strive for righteousness. Oh God, would you show us the love that it might elicit in us an act of faith to follow you, to leave everything behind so that we might know you and relationship with you, that we might be called sons and daughters of God. And for those in this room that have received it, we praise you, Father, that we are yours, that nothing in this world can separate us from it, not life or death, not the enemy, not hardship and struggle and suffering, nothing can separate us from your love. And so thankful that you do not judge us based on our behavior, but love us despite our behavior. Teach us to surrender ourselves to you and your love, to see it and breathe it and live in it. And we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.